You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Translating knowledge from bedside to bench and back again is the holy grail for all medical professionals. Physician scientists are the transport vehicle. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And with me today is Dr. Luis Parada, Assistant Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Parada and I are discussing his role as a physician scientist supervising the human clinical trial entitled Randomized Phase Three Clinical Trial Comparing Outcomes of Immunologic Autographed Engineering versus standard autograph collection in patients undergoing autologous stem cell transplantation for lymphoma. Dr. Parada, welcome to ReachMD. Uh, dear Bruce, I appreciate the uh, invitation to participate in your show and ready to go ahead and answer whatever questions you have. Let's start by talking about what life is like for a physician scientist. How is your week split up? Uh, what, do you, what do you do? What part is research? What part is clinic? Yes, uh, Bruce, usually uh, during the weekdays, I have around 20% research time that I spend that uh, Thursdays and Friday morning. The rest of the time is mainly clinical activities, usually seeing patients, new patients, seeing patients with fellows, uh, or residents that at the same time I had the opportunity to teach them about those patients. During my research time and Thursday morning and Friday mornings, usually I spend the time writing grants, working on new studies, new protocols, and also teaching new fellows and residents how to do research too. Where did you earn your MD and what year did you finish medical school? I finished medical school back in 1993. I did my MD at uh, Syracuse Upstate New York. My uh, MD um, story was being, uh, uh, it was a little cumbersome because my father died of leukemia and when that happened I was starting medical school so I finished my first two years of medical school in Puerto Rico where my father was very sick. After that I uh, transferred to Syracuse to finish medical school there and I did an extra year of uh, pathology at that time followed by the two years of clinical training medical school finishes in 1993. And did your dad's leukemia have any impact on where you ended up in medicine? Uh, you're completely right. Uh, that was the main reason I became a hematologist, a uh, blood cancer doctor. My father died of leukemia when he was only 45. He has a uh, type of leukemia called chronic myelogenous leukemia, which is a low-indolent leukemia. And I had the experience that he died with me at home. And with that experience, for me, it's been beneficial in the sense that I'd be able to relate to patients as a friend because I've been a relative of somebody who died with, 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 a, with a cancer. And it's been helping me as a, as a doctor to relate to patients and talk to patients, not so much from the scientific standpoint of the disease, but as a friendly face. So when did you know you were going to do part clinical medicine and part research? That happened pretty much after my father passed away and also when I was doing medical school. I felt that besides trying to help patients from the clinical standpoint, I wanted to do something else to try to improve their survival. And so far, the only way to be able to do that is through research, to find new ways to treat and target the diseases that we're dealing with. How much time would you say you spend doing grant writing and other funding exercises, trying to get enough funding for your research? I can tell you that out of that 20% research time that I have, 80% of that is writing grants and trying to get funding. Unfortunately, to be able to do good research, we need to have money. Most of my research time right now has been trying to find money to do uh, the activities that we would like to. And where do you usually find this funding? Right now, we need to adapt. In the old days, the National Institute of Health was kind of the main source for research, but now uh, 
part of the problem that we're having is the funding is being cut down from that institution. So we have to find other other sources of funding. Places that we have will be um, patients that will be willing to donate money. There are different foundations for specific diseases, like, for example, the Lymphoma Foundation, that they raise money, and then you can apply for grants for those foundations and so forth. So uh, just to be honest, whatever we can get the money, we go for it. How long ago were the good old days? When did the NIH funding really start to slow down? I think that's been happening probably for the last uh, maybe five years or so that uh, the budget from the NIH has been uh, cutting down. In, in that regard, then whatever other source that we can find to get money, we, we go for it. And where are you in the, the spectrum of senior scientists to junior scientists as far as the NIH is concerned? Uh, right now, being a system professor, I'm kind of in, in between junior to senior scientists. Once you, you switch to an associate professor and a, prof- a full professor of medicine, then you're more into the senior scientist uh, category. And is it harder for an assistant professor to get a grant than it would be for an associate or a full professor? Uh, you're completely right. Part, uh, part of the problem is experience. And the other thing that people look for funding is publications, how many publications you have, which is a sign of how well you, you develop your career, uh, how well your peers see you as a good scientist. So as a physician scientist, part of your income and your livelihood is dependent on how many grants you get. Does that discourage other physicians from becoming physician scientists? It is, uh, in the sense that if you have, for example, a very interesting project that you know that might do a lot of good to patients, but unfortunately, for whatever reason, you cannot get the money to do that project, that definitely is frustrating. And people lose interest in and and for that, they might, they might decide to do it through a different branch of medicine. You are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I am speaking with Dr. Luis Parada of the Mayo Clinic about his human clinical trial and cancer research, about research scientists, and about the Mayo Clinic in general. So tell us what it's like to work at the famed Mayo Clinic. Oh, Bruce, I tell you, I, I love it. I think Mayo Clinic is one of the best places to work. One of the reasons that I decided to work in this place is because Mayo Clinic is patient-oriented. And I believe that at the end of the day, what we do in medicine is to do the right thing for the patients. For example, it's amazing the, the compliments that I get from patients about Mayo Clinic, the way they treat the patients. One of the stories that I hear is that uh, one of my patients said, Dr. Prada, even the patients who help to clean Mayo Clinic, they're very polite. They tell us what to do, uh, where to go. Everybody's very friendly. Um, so Mayo Clinic, for the patient standpoint, I think it's definitely one of the best places for patients to come for. Tell us what it was like when you first got there, because you did your medical studies at other places, so you were used to a sort of a standard hospital environment. What was different about the Mayo Clinic for you as a physician? Uh, One of the main differences, for example, Bruce, when I did my medical school in Syracuse, New York, I worked in a VA, a veteran hospital, which one of the main problems that we have in those hospitals is when you order a test, sometimes it takes two, three days to get a result. For example, a patient comes to see me with lymphoma. He comes in the morning. I draw some blood tests. I order some x-rays, things like a CAT scan or a PET scan with a specific x-ray to look in the body. And in the afternoon, I already have the report of all the tests, including a CAT scan or a PET scan, where in other places he can take at least a week or so to get those results. So for patients' convenience, that is very good because they only have to come here and spend one or two days, get the answer that they need, and go home satisfied. And tell us about this sort of clinic mentality at Mayo where, you know, if you're my primary physician, it's kind of your job to make sure I get everything I need rather than 
at a typical hospital where if I'm the patient, it's my job to figure out how to get everything I need. Yeah, the, the reason we're doing this at Mayo is because of the Mayo brothers. The Mayo brothers say that the patient always comes first. So it's been a tradition here at Mayo that whoever is the primary doctor of the patient, when the patient comes, that doctor is in charge not only of the initial visit but any other type of consultations and also follow-ups in that regard. So, for example, even though I have a patient that goes to the hospital and one of my colleagues might be in charge of the, of the hospital service at that time, any decision-making and so forth has to still go through the primary doctor so we keep continuity of care with the patient. And the patient enjoy that. Many patients tell us that sometimes back home they don't know who their primary doctor is. And one of the things that has been very rewarding is, and for the patient is sometimes they call and their primary doctor answered their phone call. When they say, you know, Dr. Prada, many times in other places is a nurse or a third person that answer our questions. One of the things that I noticed up on even on the Mayo website is that there's a free consultation service for physician to physician. Are you involved in that a lot? Yes, we are. Uh, usually that would depend what is the specific question that the, uh, uh, the uh, clinician, the outside doctor, require. For example, once a week, every so often, I'm in charge of taking any phone calls from any, of, any doctor at the Mayo Clinic or any doctor outside the Mayo Clinic. We get phone calls from doctors all over the world. So I can get a phone call from a doctor from Arkansas regarding a patient with lymphoma. He explained to me what the case, and he asked me, what would you recommend, or should we bring the patient back home? And that, that we feel is important because expedite the care of the patient. And how often do patients that uh, start out in that kind of a consultation relationship end up at the Mayo Clinic? It really varies. I can tell personally when I'm in charge of that week to get phone calls, probably maybe 50% of those patients that I receive a phone call, they come here at Mayo. The other thing that also we have is sometimes uh, the doctors back home send us the information by fax. We look at the information and we can reply to them if we feel that we need to see the patient or we agree with their treatment plan or we would recommend something different for them. Is there a charge to the physician or the patient when you do those uh, phone consultations? At the present time, no. At the present time, no. So is there a plan to make a charge for that? As far as I know, it's not. But, you know, things change. But at the present time, every time we get a phone call, it's, it's free of charge. So how do you fit that into your busy schedule? I know most physicians listening to the show barely have time to breathe and see their kids at home, and you're doing free consultations for the world. How do you have time to do all your work? Well, the free consultation, we tend to do it during the working, working hours. So um, anytime between 8.30 to 5 o'clock, if anybody calls from outside, then whoever's in charge at that time answer the questions. Outside from that, then whoever is the um, colleague who is on call, specifically uh, the colleague who's doing the hematology counsel service, then he will be the person who will be in charge to answer any question from any doctor who is outside Mayo Clinic. So during working hours, if you're in charge of that week, then you answer those phone calls. Outside from that, whoever is on call, take the phone calls. Okay, so here's my very technical scientific question. You were born in Puerto Rico. You live in Rochester, Minnesota now. How are the winters? Well, I tell you, um, I, I think like everything else, you get used to it. Uh, when I was in Syracuse, I think Syracuse for me... Um, there was more snow than being cold here in Minnesota. But I can tell you a funny story. The first time I came here in May of 1993 was minus 75 degrees Fahrenheit. And the lowest it got in my town in Puerto Rico, named Ponce, was 75 degrees above. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I dropped more than 100 degrees. What am I doing here? 
But as time passed by, as I say, you get used to it. And I believe the things happen for a reason. And I met my wife here uh, in May, so it's been very, uh, very good for me. We're fighting diseases on many fronts, especially in the research lab. Physicians who have one foot in the clinic and one in the research lab provide many of the insights and ideas that push translational medicine to find cures for patients. I want to thank Dr. Luis Parada of the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, for sharing his research insights with us. I am attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.